The scripture reading for today is Mark chapter 6, verse 35. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of fish and bread. The number of the men who had eaten was five thousand. Good morning everyone. Uh, Today is uh, called Living in Light of the Extraordinary Picnic. And this is part two of the sermon on the feeding of the 5,000 from Mark 6. I'd encourage you to listen to the recording if you weren't able to make it last week because it really sets up what's going on and today makes the most amount of sense in light of what we covered last week. But as a quick reminder, we covered the story of what happened on that mountainside. The disciples and Jesus had found themselves in the wilderness with a lot of hungry people. The disciples made a reasonable suggestion to send the people away to go and buy food, but Jesus rejected that idea and instead told them to go and feed the people themselves. Now they don't like that and they push back on Jesus, who graciously just tells them to go and see what they do have. And in the fuller reading last week, we then heard that Jesus then took the two fish and the five loaves of bread. He gave thanks to God, he broke the bread, and then he tells the disciples to hand it out. And at the end, there is more food left over than there was to begin with. The disciples finally manage to get back in the boat and head back without Jesus, who stays behind to pray on his own up the mountainside. A storm blows up where they are struggling against the wind and the waves in their boat and Jesus walks out to them but in a strange way of describing it Mark says he was about to pass them by. And we unpacked last week that the first main point of this story which was to say um, this whole passage points to Jesus being a new but ultimate Moses, a deliverer enacting a whole new exodus. Now the whole whole of Mark's gospel echoes this, but this particular set of events in the life and ministry of Jesus is perhaps the most illuminating of all in this exodus motif. And the miraculous provision of bread and fish in a remote place reminded the people of the miraculous provision of manna and quail in the remote wilderness. A bit later on, Jesus shows his supremacy over the natural order of water, when he walks across the lake to rescue the 12 men in a boat, his chosen disciples, which of course was a reminder of when God once before showed his supremacy over the natural order of water, when he parted the Red Sea, also to rescue the 12 tribes of Israelites, his chosen people. So in recognising that this is a new exodus, there were three points for us to take home, but remember we only got to one last week. Today we're going to cover the next two. And as a reminder, that first point that we made last week, 
was to see that Jesus is doing something far more than a miraculous provision of bread at a picnic. He wasn't just meeting the needs of some hungry tummies. He was demonstrating that he is the leader of a rebellion against sin and death. And he is on the path to deliver anyone who would recognize him for who he was. So deliverance from material and physical needs in the form of miracles wasn't what Jesus' ministry was about. Although, of course, we know he did do that as he went. His ministry was about something far greater and more significant than freedom from Roman oppression or physical suffering here and now. He had come to deliver mankind from the curse of the fall, from our own condemnation, and back into life with him, invited back into relationship with God. We're no longer separated from God's presence for eternity, but after death we are reunited to him, where the curse has gone. As Revelation speaks about in chapter 22, where there will be no more curse. Let me just read the end of that story at the end of the Bible, because this is what we get to look forward to. This is what the exodus that Jesus has inaugurated is all leading to. It's always good to look back and see, or look forward, I should say, and see what we can look forward to, the hope that we have. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. This is what Jesus came to do. And it's so incredible. This is the rebellion against the old order of things that Jesus had come to lead. Not a rebellion against the short-lived Roman Empire, which would just pass away anyway. So it's not just the future, though, that we have hope for. We actually have hope in this life, here and now, too. Jesus is our daily bread, our food for our daily grind. This hope, this new identity, it gives us a deep satisfaction in our lives here and now. And so in light of that first point, we spoke about the two dangers. The Firstly, the danger of being hard-hearted like the disciples. And the second was living like we are still in the slavery of Egypt. So I asked us last week, are we hard-hearted like the disciples? Do we get the magnitude of what Jesus had come to do? Or like some of the people of Jesus' day, are we just focused on being delivered from our equivalent of Roman oppression? In our day, this means asking ourselves, are we hung up on God not delivering us from our present oppressive circumstances, whatever is uncomfortable in our lives and distressing, but also only temporal? Now look, we have every right to pray for things that are distressing us, absolutely, and we should long for difficult circumstances to change. And to pray for the circumstances of others. I am not for one moment saying these things don't matter and that we should be bringing these things to God. But a crucial question for us to ask is whether our faith depends on whether God answers those prayers or not. See, if we see God as a father Christmas figure or someone just to help us in our various physical needs here on earth, and our faith on him wavers depending on whether or not he is answering our requests or not, we actually really don't understand or have a full grasp of what Jesus really came to do. We don't get the exodus that he is inaugurating. 
So that was the first temptation. Now we hard-hearted like the disciples. And the second temptation that we could be tempted into is to keep living like we are still in Egypt. We can be free in Christ, but we can still live like we are in chains. We can still be slave to the things that Jesus has actually died to deliver us from. Jesus says, you are no longer a worthless slave whose value depends on what you do in this life. You are a child of God, redeemed through the sacrifice of Jesus, invited to walk through this exodus that Jesus has brought into new life, delivered from the ways that you used to live. We no longer need to be bound up by what people think of us, by what we did in the past, by what we can or can't do now, by what we look like. We are a new creation in Christ and we must walk forward to embrace that truth. Otherwise we live like we are still enslaved in Egypt. And as we have been going through this book of Mark, this gospel, we've been asking ourselves three questions. What does this passage say about who Jesus is? About what he is doing? And what does this also say about what Jesus is calling us to do? And last week answered the first two. Jesus is the same God as the God in the Old Testament. Who, delete, who leads the people out of Egypt into the promised land. He is that same deliverer God. And the second one, what is Jesus doing? We also answered last week. Jesus is leading a new spiritual exodus, a new deliverance, inviting us into new life with him. So that's last week. And this week, we're going to look at how this passage speaks to what Jesus is calling us to do. The first uh, thing to do is to look at the way the bread was broken and the second is to look at the distribution of the bread by the disciples. Last week, as we uh, approached the communion table, we concluded with the way that this ultimate exodus was completed. The way he marked his revolution uh, was just as this bread was broken and then given out at the picnic. Now remember, Jesus, he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and it was consumed. See, the bread had to be broken in order for it to nourish the people. And the most powerful thing of all is that Jesus' life too was like this bread. His life was blessed. Remember the baptism? Uh, we covered that a few months ago where God blessed him. He said, this is my son, with him I am well pleased. His life was, so his life was blessed by God. And then, just as he held up the bread for the people, and as we hold up the bread at the Lord's Supper before we break it, he was held up on a cross for all to see. And then he was broken. If he'd stayed whole, we would be in pieces somewhere, condemned forever. But instead, the king of the universe, his body was broken so that we could have life. He died absorbing the wrath of God so that we could live. His blood was poured out, his body pierced so that we can feast on him and live. And this is the symbolism of the communion table. Okay, but what does that mean for us and how we live our lives now? Well, let's turn to Luke 9.23. Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. So to truly be a disciple of Jesus, we need to be like him. We must deny ourselves and what our selfish self wants to take up our cross daily and to follow Jesus. In other words, we need to be like this bread too. This is a, a really uncomfortable thing to hear. 
It's an uncomfortable thing to write about, and I'm not pretending it's easy. Jesus is saying that we too must live in a way that we are broken and given out to others. We feed others. Our life is not for the benefit of ourselves, but to bless others. The Israelites weren't saved, remember, and delivered from Egypt to be a special elite people who lived in an insular bubble building their own kingdom and empire. No, they were saved and blessed to be a blessing to the nations, pointing to God as the only true and real God. Our lives have been blessed. When we were called out of darkness and we responded to that call, we walked into the light, we were blessed. God says, you are my son, you are my daughter, with you I am well pleased. We are blessed in the same way that Jesus was blessed at his baptism. And so like the bread, and like Jesus was, we are to be held up too, hopefully not on a cross, but in our lives as a beacon of light. We don't hide away. But we are to reflect Christ, his love and his grace. And our purpose, our life purpose, is to point to him, to point others to Jesus. And then as the bread was broken and given out, like Christ was broken and given out, we too are broken and given out. What does this mean? It means living countercultural to the world around us. It means being a revolutionary, looking at the dominant culture and subverting it. What's our dominant culture? Well, the way the world says we are to live is to climb the ladder. At whatever expense it takes to get to the top. If it means squashing others to get there, then so be it. You need to be your best self. You do you. You are the king of your life. It's all about you. We just see it on the advertising everywhere. You deserve it. It's all about you. It's a world built on me first power. Success in life is to be at the top, to be earning so much money you don't know what to do with it. Success is to be the best in your field, to be well thought of, to be powerful, to be able to buy whatever you want, to acquire and to accumulate, to make yourself great. That's our culture. And Jesus says the polar opposite. Jesus says give yourself away like the bread. Your life isn't about you, it's about serving others. The first will be last. Whoever wants to save themselves, to not be broken and to not have everything given away, to be focused on building their own empire, in Luke, will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, whoever gives themselves to the success of others, whoever lives to be a blessing to the others, whoever lives to further my kingdom, Jesus says, will have their life saved. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't do well in what we do. There are many Christian businessmen and women who are at the top of their field and who have, do have a lot of money and do seem to have made it. But their heart motivation is for the other and they have been spiritually blessed as a result. So whether you've got a lot or a little, a genuine follower of Christ will live in order to bless others. Seeing themselves as a vessel for God's blessing to be poured out through them to others, not to hoard it up for themselves. If your heart is motivated towards living in such a way that you give out and God blesses you with like material wealth and career success, that is a huge bonus, yeah. But that's not the point. You don't give in order to receive money or success. Instead, by giving away these things that the world considers most important, we're actually subverting the dominant culture of our day. And we find that slowly we become less vulnerable to those things that used to steal our identity. 
and we become stronger in knowing who we are in God. And that ultimate blessing is knowing him and nothing else. Living in the footsteps of Jesus, taking up our cross and living as bread to feed others is not easy. And the only way we can do this is to keep looking at Jesus. Whether it's in prayer, whether it's in a quiet time, whether it's in reading the word, meditating on Jesus and what he did is what gives us the strength to live like him. When I find myself getting resentful about how much time, for example, a sermon swallows up or that we can't easily go away on a weekend, I just have to remind myself to look at Jesus, the king of the universe, who emptied himself of power and dignity, who allowed mere mortals to break him and crucify him and give up everything so that I could have life. Well, that just gives me all the inspiration and motivation I need to keep going. When I think about how much I would like to do my own thing, because, you know, I think I often do, instead of serving others, I have to look at Jesus and how he washed his disciples' feet. He put himself at the lowest level to serve the other. Meditate on the way he prayed for those who were killing him. Just have a look at the way, when he hung on the cross, he didn't shout down obscenities and, you know, tell them what who they really were. He prayed for them. Father, forgive them. As he hung on that cross, he blessed them. And then he broke for them. How much more should I therefore pray for and bless those who I might not naturally like or who might grate me? And I love Tim Keller's quote, which I know I've shared before, but it's worth saying again. How can you come to grips with someone who has given themselves utterly for you without you yourself giving yourself utterly for them? Let me read that again. How can you come to grips with someone who has given themselves utterly for you without you giving yourself utterly for them? See, when you see what Jesus did for you and you totally or you understand it at a deep heart level, it motivates you to do the same, to love him utterly and completely. That's the whole walk of our Christian faith, isn't it? Contemplating and looking on God and realizing at a deeper level what he has done for us each day and then it transforming us so that we can live the way he's called us to and to love him utterly and completely. The gospel transforms us on the inside and is what allows us and makes us be able to live a life of service to others, including those who don't we don't who don't believe in in, in God or don't believe in us, because that's what Jesus did and that's how he saved us. Sacrificial loving service to those around you. Jesus says, This is how you love me by loving one another, blessing one another, and giving yourself as bread for one another. And I love Henry now, and he says, when we live like this, the bread, blessed and broken, given out to others, that is when they will recognize Christ in us. Remember it was when Jesus broke the bread with the disciples on the road to the Emmaus that they recognized him? Living as the bread is the heart of mission, because we point to Christ, blessed, broken, and given. And the third point to notice from this passage is the way that Jesus does this miracle and uses the disciples. As I said last week, Mark doesn't give us annoyingly any details about how Jesus actually does his miracle. Wouldn't we all love to know just exactly how and when the bread multiplied and how it physically happened? He doesn't tell us that, um, but he does give us two details that are important to notice here. 
let's look at uh, verse 41. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Now, Jesus is using the bread they already have. He doesn't make bread out of nothing in this instance. He could, but he doesn't. And he only does the miracle as the disciples are handing the bread out. So those are the two things to notice. He uses bread they've already got, and he only does the miracle as the disciples are already handing the bread out. Now, Jesus could have waved his hands or just spoken the words, and food enough for the 5,000 or however many people were there would have appeared. If speaking creation into being uh, is possible at his word, then a little bit of bread for a few thousand people is nothing. But he doesn't do that. It would actually have been far more impressive <laughs> if he had done, uh, just clicked his fingers and then ended up with all of this food. But Jesus never does stuff to show off or to impress people. He's far too secure in who he is as the Son of God to do that sort of thing. Instead, he asks the disciples to bring what they do have. And he multiplies that meagre amount. But he doesn't do it immediately. He blesses it. He breaks it, as we've said. And then he asks them to distribute that completely inadequate amount. And it's only as they begin to hand it out that the miracle happens. What does that mean for us? Well, Jesus works in the same way with us. He asks us to do the impossible. What seems impossible to us? He takes our complete inadequacies and he does his miraculous work through these. See, the, and the disciples initially protested when, God, when Jesus asked them uh, to feed the people. He said, you feed them. And they came up with all sorts of complaints and protests. And as I said before, in his graciousness, he just continues to do what he was going to do. But he helps set it up for them. He takes the bread and the fish that they bring him. They still feel it's totally inadequate. They were still probably muttering on their breath. Oh my gosh, what's Jesus doing? Um, as he said, grace and broke the bread. And still feeling completely inadequate. They've got this meager amount. But they started to hand it out. Because he told them to. Now there, that's the obedience. Understanding how impossible it is. And yet still doing it. Probably started handing it out thinking I've got enough for three people here. But they still did it. And Jesus' whole point here, I think, uh, is obedience in the midst of inadequacy. Obedience in the midst of inadequacy. We are completely unqualified to do anything for God until we get to that point where we understand how inadequate we are to do what God has asked us and we do it anyway. Obedience in the midst of inadequacy. Because that's when we wholly rely on him. We realize we cannot rely on ourselves for anything. And that's when the power happens. That's when Jesus says, okay, now I can perform my miracle. Now I can do my restorative work in the world through you. Because you realize you can't do it and you're relying on me. But until you see what I am calling you to do is impossible on your own strength, you're absolutely unqualified to do it. It's actually really hopeful, isn't it? As Tim Keller says, what I am calling you to do, my work in the world is impossible. Tim Keller saying this is what God's saying. Uh, it will take a miracle. If you go out knowing it's impossible, that the pain of this world is so great, things are so broken and life is so bad, and you see absolutely no way you can do anything to change things, and yet you go out to do whatever it is that God has called you to do anyway, then and only then will God begin his restoration work through you. The instant you feel qualified, is the instant you are no longer qualified. 
obedience in the midst of inadequacy. A commentator on 2 Corinthians uh, put it like this, It is not God's intention that we should be in ourselves adequate to our tasks. Rather, he wants that we should be inadequate. If we only accepted the tasks which we think are adapted to our powers, we're not responding to the call of God. The church is always in crisis and always will be. Difficulties, limitations, insoluble problems, lack of people and money, a menacing outlook, endless misunderstandings and misrepresentations. We are not only to do our work despite these things. They are precisely the conditions requisite for the doing of it. <laughs> all the things that we can identify, all the things that think that make us think church is impossible, doing church is impossible in this day and age, are the requisites for God to move. I find this tremendously encouraging. Only the inadequate are the adequate. I have felt so inadequate this whole time. But this is incredibly encouraging to me. And the same is for all of us in our everyday lives. It's only when we know it's going to take a flipping miracle that God will do the miraculous. Then he will begin his redemptive work through you. Only when we know that we are inadequate but we go and do it anyway. Only when you know it's going to take a miracle to do what you feel like Jesus is calling you to do and you go and do it anyway. That's when he will begin to do that work through you. I'm sure I've told you uh, this story before, but I had a flatmate at university. She wasn't a Christian and she had uh, a father who was atheist, a mother who was into New Age Buddhism. She was and still is incredibly bright. She's done two degrees, uh, a vet degree, and then she went on to do a medicine degree. Uh, and now she's currently doing her PhD. Uh, so she's very bright. And she began to ask me questions about my faith when we were flirting together uh, way back in vet school. And I realized I felt totally inadequate to answer her questions. I was totally inadequate to convince her of her need for God. And often I felt like I was actually making things worse just by opening my mouth to answer her questions because sometimes the more I talked, the more I realized how little I could uh, answer my faith in a way that she was asking. Um, I couldn't, didn't have a strong, robust apologetic. And sometimes I just wanted to shut my mouth and say, can we just change the subject? Um, she was also the very last person on the face of the earth that I thought would ever come to faith. I just felt, like I said, totally inadequate. But as I did what I could, uh, being and feeling totally inadequate, a miracle happened. Six months later, she came to faith on her own in her room. I wasn't with her. She, um, the, she met the Lord. And it was only in my incredible weakness that God did a miracle. I still don't know how he did it. Uh, but it encourages me still to this day that God can and does use our inadequacies to do his restorative work. And as we step out in our lives to do what Jesus is asking us to do, despite it looking totally hopeless, feeling completely inadequate, we're actually giving room for God to wow us with the miraculous, to be part of his transforming work in this world. Let's uh, close in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you have delivered us into new life. We thank you that you were broken to pieces like that bread so that we could be restored to wholeness. Help us to understand a deeper way, in a deeper way, what you have done for us so that we don't continue to live like we are in slavery. Help us to understand what it means to live as a blessing to others. 
to live lives in service to you by serving others. It's hard, God. It's not what we want to do. But as you say, it's the only way to real life. Give us the faith to obey when the task in front of us seems impossible. Teach us your ways. Continue to draw us more into the likeness of you so that we may be a blessing to those around us and point the way to you. Amen.